So let's read the scripture. It's in your bulletin. We're looking at Romans 8 and just this section, 18 through 30. We looked a little bit about it uh, last time, but we're going to look at this today a little bit more in depth. And so now hear God's word. Yet what we suffer now is nothing compared to the glory he will reveal to us later. For all creation is waiting eagerly for that future day when God will reveal who his children really are. Against its will, all creation was subjected to God's curse. But with eager hope, the creation looks forward to the day when it will join God's children in glorious freedom from death and decay. For we know that all creation has been groaning, as in the pains of childbirth, right up to this present time. And we believers also groan, even though we have the Holy Spirit within us as a foretaste of future glory. For we know that our bodies are to be released from sin and suffering. We too wait with eager hope for the day when God will give us full rights as his adopted children, including the new bodies he has promised us. We were given this hope when we were saved. If we already have something, we don't need to hope for it. But if we look forward to something we don't yet have, we must wait patiently and confidently. And the Holy Spirit helps us in our weakness. For example, we don't know what God wants us to pray for. But the Holy Spirit prays for us with groanings that cannot be expressed in words. And the Father who knows all hearts knows what the Spirit is saying, for the Spirit pleads for us with believers in harmony with God's own will. And we know that God causes everything to work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to His purpose them. For God knew his people in advance, and he chose them to become like his son, so that his son would be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And having chosen them, he called them to come to him. And having called them, he gave them right standing with himself. And having given them right standing, he gave them his glory. This is the word of the Lord. Uh, when we were in seminary, Jim Bailey's here today, he might remember, Richard Pratt used to tell us, he would say, we think Jesus came to forgive our sins, make our souls sparkle, sprinkle us with peace and joy so we can sprout wings when we die, grab a harp, and join the eternal choir. That is not what God's plan for this world was. It's not making our souls sparkle and sprinkling us with joy and peace. Whenever we read the word glory, our minds go, I mean, I don't even know where people's minds go. I know my mind goes to all kinds of things as well. 
I think of a big ball of sparkling light, uh, you know, brighter than the sun, if you can imagine that, and, uh, or, or some other thing. But glory is an attribute of God. It's, it's what He is. He is glorious. And the word glory in Hebrew, kavod, means weighty or heavy or meaningful. That, that all substance and goodness, everything is wrapped up in His glory. And that glory he shares with no one else. It's his and his alone. So when we read this passage, we see that the, that the section is encapsulated in two places. Verse 18, look at it. We suffer now, our suffering now is nothing compared to the glory he will reveal in us later. Then jump down to verse 30. He has given us right standing and given us his glory. So this section is uh, like a parenthesis. Glory on one side, glory on another. This present reality, listen to this, this present reality, the one we live in, can only be understood when placed in comparison with another reality. One, the suffering, without the other, glory, is clearly unimaginable. Stick with me. Here, now, is meaningless if not for there with our Lord and then the consummation of all things, the second coming of Jesus and beyond the eternal state. Otherwise, all we have left is nihilism, despair, meaninglessness, hopelessness, and paralysis. We see this every day in our culture. Everything's meaningless. What does it matter? Let me get my hands on everything now because when I die, I die and everything is gone. And so... Christians are often looked at as people who just have this wishful thinking. We're, we're, we're just hoping that it's not all meaningless. We're just hoping that there's something. And so we create all this stuff in our head about resurrection and Jesus and glory and God and this and that and the other thing because we are so desperate to make our lives meaningful. And the Apostle Paul, throughout this letter, has addressed the world, all human beings. And he said, you know, the world is messed up. Why? Not because God made it messed up. He made it good and very good. But because men and women from the beginning of recorded history until now have suppressed the truth with a lie and reached out and replaced, or suppressed the truth with a lie and reached out with and grabbed that lie and brought it into their lives. And folks, I, you, there is no getting around that. That is the truth. That is an insight into humanity that is, it boggles the mind. God did not make the world the way it is. We did. And we must take responsibility for that, the good and the bad, because it's only in that context that you will ever find meaning for your life. In this section... 
Dr. Hendrickson, William Hendrickson, identifies three groanings, and I'm going to talk about those today. Then next week, we'll look at this magnificent section, 28 through 30, that is probably the favorite of I don't know how many people. Uh, but right now, let's look at these three groanings. One is starts in verse 22. It's the groaning of all creation. The second one is humanity's groaning, and the third one is the Holy Spirit. So let's jump in and look at these three. Verse 22. The creation groaning. We all know that the creation is groaning as in, in the pains of childbirth to the present time. Why is creation groaning? You see, he's anthropomorphic. What? Yeah, whatever, right? Anthropomorphized the creation. He's personified the creation as if it's a conscious, sentient thing. He's doing that so we can learn. The creation is groaning. And what he says about creation is that it's been waiting, it's been subjected to something, and it is looking forward to something. And I would ask and invite you, put yourself in there, because what he's talking about is creation. He's talking about everything that is, which includes, in a side, the human race. But he's going to talk about humanity separate because we even know more than the creation. If this bothers you, think about uh, the Psalms where the trees of the field clap their hands. The mountains sing for joy. The heavens, stars and moon and planets declare the glory of God. You see, the Bible does this. It's beautiful po poetic language and metaphors that we can put ourselves into and see. The creation was not, was not made to be groaning. And yet it is. It is waiting. All creation, the natural world, the animate and inanimate, that's animals and trees and all that, and inanimate rocks and ocean and the seas and lakes and river, all these things are groaning. They're waiting eagerly for a future day. Look at verse 19. When God will reveal, the word reveal is apocalypsis, it's the revelation or the end of all things with the unfolding, the revealing of what really was supposed to be. What this world is not, what it's supposed to be, what we are supposed to be. He'll talk about that in a minute. Who his children are. When the sons of God are revealed, the sons of God is one of those places, we've talked about this, where we probably should not use the gender neutral because, because he's talking about something that he wants men and women to know that we are both going to inherit this world the same, men and women. So he uses sons, he puts it in the context, it's magnificent. If you have any questions about this, uh, you can ask uh, Dawson. <laughs> this is a reference to the second coming. The, the, the world, the creation is groaning, looking forward to that day when it will be recreated in the way it was meant to be. 
The creation was subjected. Look at verse 20. It was subjected against its own will. We already talked about this at length. You go back to Genesis chapter 1, that little section 18 through 32 tells you what happened to the world, why it's the way it is. It is absolutely magnificent. In just a few verses, Paul encapsulates everything that's wrong with humanity and the creation itself and how it happened. I've told you all, folks, over and over again, Genesis 1, 2, and 3 explain everything. It's profound. You say, how can you say that? Go read it. Read it like you haven't read it before. Just read 1 through 3. And it explains everything. In fact, the rest of the Bible, starting with Genesis 4 to the end of Revelation, chapter 22, is simply there. All that whole book of the Bible is there only because of what happened in chapter 3. Otherwise, there would be no Bible. Be no need for a Bible. Wouldn't be any need for a letter to the Romans. The world was subjected against its will. It is not God's original purpose that we slaughter, kill, and annihilate one another. That we have cancer. That we have divorce. We have broken lives. That we have addiction. That we have brokenness all around us. That is not His plan. His plan for this world was something else. But because of sin... Not only Adam and Eve sinned, but every one of us sinning after that. All of us. The world is working against its will. Creation was subjected. And humanity's choice. It was our choice. You know, we, we like to uh, you know, make, uh, make Adam and Eve the scapegoats for all our troubles. But folks, if we could have beamed them up to the enterprise and beamed you down, guess who would have eaten the apple or kiwi or whatever it was? We would have done the same. And it wasn't because there's any flaw. That's the mystery of iniquity, is that there was no flaw in humanity. He was given the freedom to obey God. He had it. And he lost it. Humanity's choice can be summed up in these words, and they are, they are stunning. She saw, she took, she ate, she gave. So simple the act, so hard its undoing. So simple the act, Adam and Eve are in the garden, And God had given them a paradise to live in and they were not satisfied with paradise. And therefore, they reached out, they took, they ate, and they plunged themselves and all of us into darkness. God's curse was on the the creation itself. No, if you go back in Genesis, God does not create, does not curse Adam and Eve. He curses the serpent, and then he does something else. He curses the ground. Ground being all this created matter. And he said that creation would be left in a state of futility. 
open your heart to these words. Just look at our lives. Futility, frustration, aimlessness. If we're honest with ourselves, and I don't know about you, but I, I mean, this is what I get paid for, is to be honest with myself at least. The, the session at least hopes that I'm doing that, right? I hope I'm being honest with myself and that I will read my Bible and see what's going on in there and then come and, and put it on you because I don't want to be the only one feeling bad. I want you to feel bad with me. <laughs> we need to suffer together. But think about it. I'm coming to the end of my career and I have looked back and I have seen a lot of futility and meaninglessness and emptiness in my life. I owned a business for 20 years, some of you know, before I went to seminary. And I worked night and day. I put in 80, 90-hour weeks. I took my wife and my two boys and I sacrificed them on the altar of that business so that I could have money and hopefully get some sort of uh, uh, accolades from people around. Look how hard he works. Look how much money he makes. Look at what he is. And do you know what? It's all gone. The money's gone. My marriage was a wreck. My kids were a mess. And nobody even knows what I did. And nobody cares. And even if you're the greatest human being that ever lived, and they put a monument for you in uh, Washington, D.C., someday it's going to turn to dust. And we know that. And listen, folks, in our darkest part of our souls, when we're laying awake at night and something is keeping us up and we're thinking about life in general, this is what eats a hole in our psyche, in our mind, in our soul. This is what is eating away at us. How can I fulfill what I really am? What did God make me to be? We feel trapped. We feel like we can't get out. And then, out, outside of this creation, God sends us His Son who takes on our flesh just like us, flesh and bones. And He, our Lord Jesus, experiences every single one of these futility and frustration. He pours His life out. He, he heals. He feeds. He comforts. He raises the dead. And at the end... He dies alone and he dies naked with nothing. And even his father, in some crazy, mysterious way, we can't even begin to imagine his father forsakes him. The only human being that is ever forsaken. The only human being who is ever completely subjected to real futility, real emptiness, the, a real feeling like there's nothing but a grave. That's our Savior. That's what, that's what happened to Him on the cross. And He entered that grave with all that emptiness on Him. That's why when we talk Easter, Easter is a... a Something I don't think Christians will ever, we will have eternity to contemplate what Easter is. Jesus 
breaking out of the tomb and taking all that emptiness and futility and death and darkness and swallowing it up inside himself and crushing it to nothing. And what he holds out to you and to me and where I'm going to tell you as your pastor, where you can find, the only place you're going to find the kind of meaning that you need so that you can make it through this life with joy is in this verse 20. It's God's hope. Look, but with eager hope, uh, the, the original's a little bit better. It says, because of Him, God, who subjected in hope, this futile creation, God has hope. But it's not like worldly hope. Worldly hope is what I told you. It's wishful thinking. But what's so beautiful about this is God creates a kind of hope that is filled with substance. It's not an empty, wishful kind of thinking or rolling of the dice or buying a lottery ticket and hoping that you'll catch the million dollars or whatever. Well, now it's millions, nothing. You need a billion uh, to live on this earth now. So whatever whatever you think, that wishful thinking that we humans embrace is empty. It's nothing. But he's saying that hope in God is not wishful thinking. It is a 100% absolute certainty because God has subjected the world. He let it go because he had hope that something could be created out of the nothing that we created. You get the picture? God creates something full of substance and beauty and glory and the universe and the, the telescope, what's it called? Web telescope is looking out there and blowing everybody's minds. And, and believe me, the bigger the telescope, the farther they're going to see. And the farther they see, the more glory is erupting. And when Jesus came out of the tomb, that tsunami was was set, was created, and it is rolling this way, and glory is coming every day closer and closer. And we have hope for that. It's not that it might happen. It will happen. I don't know when, maybe today, maybe tomorrow, maybe a million years. Richard Pratt used to tell us it's going to be at least two million years, so just settle down. You know, we read the newspaper, we think, oh my God, it's going to happen today. You know what? Things are, things are better now than they have ever been in centuries. We've got to quit whining and wringing our hands and look forward in hope, eager hope. What about humanity? Let me do this quickly. Look at verses 23 through 25. So creation is groaning for this, and God has set hope in our hearts that the creation will be recreated to be what it originally was. Now he moves to human beings. Humanity groans. Why do we groan, folks? Why does humanity groan? We groan because we suffer in this world. He he told us, The suffering you're going to have in this world is not to be compared with the glory that would be revealed in us. So the acknowledgement that there's going to be suffering in this world should come as no surprise. But here in the United States, we have created a whole new theology. Sans 
suffering. No suffering. God wants you to be healthy, wealthy, full of everything good. You don't dare go to church and tell somebody, they ask you how you're doing, you say, not too good. You wouldn't say that. No, I'm blessed. I'm better than I deserve. We use all kinds of bumper sticker theology because we're here and we want to make sure that everybody thinks we're doing really well. And the church should be more like an Alcoholics Anonymous meeting where we come together and we look at one another and we know we're broken and we enter into one another's sufferings. I hope, I pray, not wishful thinking, but I really believe that we could be those kinds of people, honest and transparent with one another. And the older I get, the more I hurt. the more I know about Jesus Christ and the kingdom to come and the beauty of what could be and should be and will be, the more I groan. The older my children get, the more I groan. The older my grandchildren get, the more I groan. We groan because the image of God was put in each one of us and we know what we are destined for. Christians especially groan because we know that we're not made for this. We're made for something better, something greater. Look at verse 23. We groan even though we have the Holy Spirit as a foretaste of future glory. See, we come together on Sunday and we take the Lord's Supper and we hear the sermons and we sing these beautiful songs with our, our musicians and we let our, hopefully you're letting your heart soar, you're not looking around to, you know, letting be distracted, but just looking up and thinking about, you know, this is my one day in seven, my one hour to pour my heart out to Almighty God and thank Him for the blood and body of His Son. And thank Him for brothers and sisters that I can trust, that can go through the journey with me. And, and we can live together and prop each other up in our sufferings. Because we're groaning. We've had that foretaste of glory. And we still, we pine for the feast, don't we? We pine for the wedding feast. We want the wedding feast. We want more than just a little piece of bread and a little dip of wine. We want the whole thing. We were made for that. Look at verse the second part. We long for bodies to be released from suffering. Everyone in this room has had some affliction. I don't know what you've had. I know what I've had, and you don't even want to know all the details about that. Awful stuff happens to our bodies, and so we long for the day that our bodies are not subjected to those things, to the horrors of dementia, to the horrors of cripple. You know, I'm having trouble walking. I've seen, neuro I've seen every neuro neurologist in El Paso. They don't know what's wrong with me. I could easily tell them what's wrong with me, but they don't want to listen to that part. All right. Our bodies hurt and suffer. Even when we're young, we're little, we, we look, you know, kids hurt. They fall, they scuff their knees, and our heart breaks for the, our little guys when they hurt themselves. Yes? We groan for them. We wait for eager hope for God to give us our full rights. 
as adopted children. You see, it's what he talked about last time we talked about. This adoption where God takes us into his family. But we're not there quite yet. We were given this hope. Look at 44. We were given this hope when we were saved. We were given hope. God implanted a real hope in every single one of you that believe in Jesus. His kind of hope. Not wishful thinking. Not maybe. But absolute certainty. And that's part of why we groan. We know that it's coming. We know that Jesus Christ rose from the dead. I don't wish that He rose from the dead. He did. And my hope is based on that fact, that reality of Jesus. And then he puts a parenthetical statements, really kind of cool. If we already have something, we don't need to hope for it. We just need to be patient and confident and look forward to something we don't have. Folks, this isn't easy. It's not easy to come to church and say, gosh, you mean i got to wait patiently? We're used to McDonald's Christianity. You get it now. You have it your way. That's Burger King. <laughs> this is an exquisite, this whole section, this 23 through 25, Paul is going down into the heart of human beings, especially Christians, especially us. And he's asking us to open up and look at ourselves and why we're groaning, why we're hurting. It's not bad that we're hurting. It's not bad that we're groaning the, because all of it is wrapped up in that hope that we have. And yet, sometimes we let it sink us. And what I'm saying is that when you are feeling down and, and really not sure and you're, you're not, you, there's, there's a lot of, sand underneath you. You just don't feel like you're in, on a rock. What do you do as a Christian? What do you do? I don't know what other people do. I know what I used to try to do. I would drink myself into oblivion so that I didn't have to feel that it was hopeless. Or other things. You pick your poison. The point is that God has put a hope in your heart a substantial hope that you can look forward to with absolute certainty and drop your anchor there. The book of Hebrews says he himself becomes the anchor of our soul and that anchor is behind the veil. It's in the presence of God. He's not, you're not at the end of your rope and tying a knot. He's got you wrapped up in cords of love. He has wrapped his love around you and you cannot escape. And he just says to us every single Sunday when we come to the table or, or we hear the word of God, he's saying, trust me, wait patiently and confidently with faith and don't be afraid. Don't be afraid of politics and, and, and the world's crashing. And I, I got an email from somebody that says, oh my goodness, what, you know, the economy is going to collapse. No, it's not. And if it does, it's just money. And if the United States, if we don't have water like these people in Jackson, Mississippi, the RTS flagship seminary is in Jackson, Mississippi. The best Christians in the world live in Jackson, Mississippi. 
and they have no water. What are you going to do? What are you going to do when they've slaughtered your whole family like they did in Syria, ISIS, right before your eyes, and then they kill you? But they kill your family first, so that's the last thing you get to see. Well, folks, that's been going on for millennia. And the only people on this earth that have ever been able to face that with patience and confidence have been Christians. But we don't do it much anymore. Finally, let's look at the Holy Spirit groaning. This is, abs- this is mind-blowing because what we're seeing here is Paul reaching back into the creation Genesis 1 and 2, where the Holy Spirit comes and hovers over the creation and takes the chaos, the formless and void, the insubstantial, the tohu v'bohu is what it's called in Hebrew, this formless and void, this chaos, the Holy Spirit comes and he begins to reorder that chaos and that formlessness. And Paul says he's groaning now, again. Again, he is hovering over this creation. I mean, it should send shivers up our backs to think about this. Even though we don't feel it, Paul is saying the Holy Spirit is hovering. Look at 26. The Holy Spirit helps us in our weakness. We don't know what to pray for. We're not sure what's going on. Sometimes our our words go up to God and they just bounce down to us and lay there and do nothing. And it's hard to pray sometimes. You don't know, what, what do I pray for? How do I pray? Are my prayers even reaching the ceiling? What is going on? And we agonize in our prayers. And Paul is, is bringing us to a place where he says, don't, you don't need to agonize. Listen, the Holy Spirit helps us in our weakness. We don't know what to pray for. But the Holy Spirit prays for us with groanings that cannot be put into words. In other words, the Holy Spirit is hovering once again over His creation, over you and me and the world around us. And He is giving birth to a new creation, a new world, a world filled with His glory and His good. And if we will just look up and see that, that we are not, our prayers are not hitting the ceiling and coming down. They are going into the heart of God. And the Holy Spirit is taking every single one of our sorrows and our griefs and our needs. He's taking them up to the Father and He Himself. This beautiful comforter, this advocate that lives with us now is carrying them up to God. And when He takes them there, Jesus takes them from Him And it says the Son of God ever lives to make intercession for us. My gosh. And here we are, folks. I know I do this almost every day. We're wringing our hands. What am I going to do? What am I going to do? Verse 27. The Father knows all hearts. He knows what the Spirit's saying. I don't know what I'm saying in half the time. But he takes my prayer and he takes it to the Father. And the Father knows what the Spirit is saying. The Spirit is pleading for us. 
pleading with God for us in harmony with God's will. Do you want to know what God's will is? Dr. Walke used to tell us God's will, his hidden will, behind the scenes, the eternal decrees, all that theological stuff. If you want to see God's will, just wait a minute. You'll see God's will. You'll see the providence of God. But we're not to go and look at that and try to bring that back in some Christian divination and witchcraft into our life and try to, you know, interpret things like some sort of mystics. We're supposed to live on this side of the eternal decrees and not know what's behind the curtain and trust Him. And as providence unfolds to us, we continue through because the Spirit is pleading for us. He knows what the will of God is. So trust Him. Let me finish with this. What are the answers to this groaning? How does God answer the groanings of creation, the groanings of humanity, and the groanings of His own blessed Holy Spirit? What is the answer? It's 28 through 30. How how do we get our head around this stuff? I don't know. That's why Martin Lloyd-Jones spent two years preaching the book of Romans. And Sinclair Ferguson, 80 sermons in the book of Romans. And they're going to look back on Chuck Isaac, and I'm going to have maybe 15, 20. What answers these groanings? Paul just comes in and, and blows everything out of the water when he says this. We know that God causes everything to work together for good to those who love God, who are called according to His purpose. For God knew His people. You see, it's not important that you know God. This is what's really important, that He knows you. Because we forget sometimes. God knew His people in advance. He chose them to become like His Son, so His Son would be the firstborn of many brothers and sisters. And having chosen them, He called them to come. And having called them, He gave them right standing. He made you acceptable. You didn't do anything to get this. He made you that Himself. And having given them right standing, He gives them His glory. Now, you can read the Old Testament, folks. He doesn't share His glory with anybody. So what is going on with all of that? How do we get to share in His glory? Well, we'll, hopefully we can talk about it next week a little bit more. But who is the glory of God? Who embodied the glory of God? Who took the glory of God and clothed it with flesh? And who in that flesh groaned every day of his life from the first cry of birth to his groaning on the cross and in the garden and everywhere in between at the grave of Lazarus, your Savior groaned. That's the only reason all this groaning matters. Because the glory of God was encased, if you will, in the frailty of flesh. 
And when it was peeled back up on the mountain with Peter and James and John, and they saw it, they couldn't believe what they saw. We're looking at the glory of God, and it's not a thing. It's a person. It is Jesus Christ, our Lord, who gave himself for every one of us. Having given them right standing, he gave them his glory. I, I pray, will you trust him? I pray you will. Let's, let's pray. Father, I don't know, this is a, too much for words. How can we even begin to get our heads around what you have done for us? But we live here and now, and our pain is real, and we ask that you would please come into our hearts. Fill us with patience and with confident faith. And as we take this holy sacrament, feed us in our hearts by faith. Feed us with the body and the blood of our Savior. We need you. You are our life. Amen.